When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello, Merry Christmas, and welcome to the Political Party. This episode features the Daily Mirror's Pippa Creera, the breaker of some of the biggest stories in politics in the last two years. And of course, this year, all those incredible exclusives about the parties at number 10 and elsewhere. We talk about all that. It's brilliant. Um, but before that, this is probably the last episode of the year. I think it is the last episode of the year. Um, I may try and put one out early in the new year, but we'll see. The first live show is the 10th of January at the Duchess Theatre with Neil Kinnock. Two weeks after that, my guest is Angela Rayner. I've got some great guests. I'm on the verge of being able to confirm for February onwards. And I'm delighted to announce that um, I'm going on tour for the first time in a couple of years with my brand new show, Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right. It's a title I really should have thought of a long time ago. So it really um, highlights how kind of dim I am, really. I should have called my first tour that. But anyway, here we are. Um, I've had a poster done where I am dressed up as Pennywise the Clown and the Joker from Batman, and I can't decide whether it's a really good poster or whether it just looks crackers. Anyway, judge for yourself. You can get tickets. I'm not, so I'm probably coming to a comedy club or um, an art centre near you. I'm going to Nottingham, various dates in London, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Chorley, Salford, Newcastle, uh, Hexham. I don't have the dates in front of me, so I'm just listening to Bath, Bristol, all over the place. Um, mattford.com, and you'll be able to find the tickets there. Um, what a great Christmas present, although you've left it a little late. But don't worry about that, um, either for yourself or for a loved one. Um, so, anyway, this is the last show of the year. Merry Christmas. Obviously, the Christmas special didn't take place. We had to delay it because of COVID. We're looking to reschedule that. So if you've got a ticket for that, that will be valid for a brand new date that we'll do. And we'll do it as a Christmas special with MP4, with Rosanna and with Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, and we will do it with Christmas songs <laughs> because that was going to be our Christmas party. And as we know, everyone loves a Christmas party, even those at the centre of power. It's just that some of us, perhaps, delay ours for the greater good. So there we go. Um, that show will happen at some point in the new year. So look out for that and follow me on Twitter at Matt Ford for the latest on the tour and uh, the political party live. Today's guest is arguably the biggest name in British journalism at the moment and has broken some phenomenal stories. Pippa is very modest about the stories that she's broken and the position it puts her in. Um, but this is a great conversation about how you find these stories, how you break them, whether you think they're going to be big stories or not, what keeps them going. It's a really great uh, peek inside the world 
of a, and particularly given the two years that Pippa's had with the Dominic Cummings story, various others, but then all this stuff about the Downing Street party and the reality of um, whether newspapers plan all this stuff out, how much of it comes to them, who it comes from. It's fantastic. I began by putting it to Pippa that there probably isn't a journalist in the world whose stories have dominated their countries in the way that hers have and asked her how the last two years have been for her as a journalist. Well, I think you're flattering me, Matt. I'm sure there's plenty of journalists in all sorts of places that uh, have had, including including in Britain, that have had an incredible impact. Um, but it but it has been a it has been a strange time. Well, it's been a strange time for all of us, anyway, hasn't it? But it's been a strange time to be a journalist, not least because I'm sitting chatting to you now in my well, it's basically my kids' playroom. Um, despite my sort of posh bookshelves that you can see behind me, and that you know I always use my backdrop for telly and stuff. But if you could see the other side of the screen, that it's you know piles of Lego and you know children's books and all the rest of it dog's bed very unglamorous so you know we've all been working from home and that has obviously presented uh for long periods that has obviously presented unique challenges particularly during um the lockdown periods the rest of the time i've been going into westminster um i popped in during i popped in during some of the lockdowns as well because we are allowed to and i kind of feel that if the mps are there then then we should at least sort of have a, a presence there but, uh, you know, first and foremost, it's the strange thing that everyone's experienced of just juggling the kids, the dog, the house, um, the um, on, on top of work and and the sort of the added challenges which that that creates for everybody. But for you personally, it must have been the most exciting two years work wise, because the stories you've broken, you won a load of awards last year. I'm sure you're going to win even more awards in the future. You've been breaking the single biggest stories about this government and it's flouting of the rules for for about two years now i mean you, the cummings one the number 10 party stuff so what was was the cummings barnard castle the first real sort of hollywood level you know story that you broke well i think i've had the benefit of working for a paper like the mirror which is not just very keen shall we say to hold the government to account but also is quite isn't ashamed of being or afraid of being punchy about it. And we've had some quite striking front pages right throughout the pandemic and beyond the pandemic as well, obviously. Um, so from that perspective, I've had a huge amount of support from my editor and, and the team. Um, over the years, I've obviously had lots of different stories ranging from, um, you know, I first became a Westminster reporter in the early noughties. So the Blair Brown years, um, the trials of the Iraq war, you know, going out to Iraq, going out to Libya and seeing that famous handshake between Blair and Gaddafi and then the start of the uh, the start of the Cameron years, the austerity. Um, I, at that point, spent a lot of time, I was working for the Evening Standard at that point, so worked, spent a lot of time working in London, so got to know and cover Boris Johnson very well and then Sadiq Khan. So, you know, there have been all sorts of stories over the years which have been absolutely fascinating. But yes, it is true that in the last couple of years, um, I seem to have landed with the support of others, um, landed some big, some uh, fairly sort of heavyweight tales, if you like, big revelations. And I think what's really struck me about them, and I think why they've kind of taken off in the way that they have, is that they don't just matter to people in our world at Westminster. And with both, 
both the two that you mentioned, both the Dominic Cummings story and um, more recently the number 10 Christmas party story, in the days immediately after breaking them, I had people, politicians, uh, my, my journalist peers and others sort of saying, oh, you know, it's interesting, but you know, is it going to cut through? Dominic Cummings himself um, sort of shrugged off our story and suggested that nobody would care about it. Um, but they were wrong because not only um, were they sort of, I suppose, interesting from a Westminster perspective, but they were much more broadly felt by the public because everybody, and the similarities between the stories is, of course, government high profile figures breaking rules that the rest of us had to abide to. But everybody during those periods made their own sacrifices. And in some cases, they were kind of fairly sort of, you know, pedestrian ones like, you know, having to stay at home and not go to the office or, you know, in my case, homeschooling the kids rather than packing them off to school. But for lots of people, they were much more serious than that. They couldn't be with loved ones when they were in hospital, when they were ill. Babies were born without fathers being there. Uh, people lost their parents and, and you know, weren't able to be there as they died and then struggled to, you know, be comforted at funerals. Um, all the while, there was these examples, these egregious examples of apparent rule breaking by the people who were making us all follow the rules. And I think that really struck home with a lot of people. Even if their sacrifices were fairly minimal on the scale, they did nevertheless make them. And as we know, there's nothing the public likes less than double standards and what they regard as hypocrisy. So on the Dominic Cummings story, when you've got other journalists saying to you, oh, is it going to cut through? Is that because they're slightly jealous that you've got it? Is there a rivalry amongst journalists? Do they go, oh, I don't think that's much of a big deal because they, they wish they had the story? Or are they? is that genuinely what they think? And is there a solidarity among journos of, of all political persuasions? Well, I'm sure there are some that would sort of dismiss a story because of the professional rivalry, but the people I speak to most regularly are friends as well as colleagues. And, you know, there is a genuine sort of, well, Dominic Cummings is somebody that's known at Westminster. Is he really known beyond? Do people really care about that? That's a perfectly legitimate question. And actually the questioning over the Cummings story came primarily from people in number 10 at that time and government at that time. Uh, government ministers who all lined up to defend him only to find out that, uh, you know, they they sort of uh, been asked to defend him, even though he had um, broken the rules. Um, and, and of course, Cummings himself. It's a bit different this time around because, you know, hands up, I thought they, the day after our, our first number 10 uh, splash, as I came into work, I kind of thought, well, you know, it's a good story and I might get a bit of a follow, but is anyone really going to be interested in something that happens um, a year ago and then it was quite apparent over the subsequent days that people really were not least because we're in a time again where we're thinking about are we going to have more restrictions what's the government going to do about this Christmas and people cancelling their own Christmas parties and all that sort of stuff um but it's so so I myself had you know had my doubts whether whether it would cut through and I think probably it, there was two key things that happened one was that Keir Starmer brought it up at Prime Minister's question time and uh, that then gave the broadcasters an opportunity to run with it. And actually, it was the broadcasters over that first week of the story, um, most notably the BBC and, and Ross Atkins and um, ITV and Paul Brandt, who then exposed that video um, of Lego Stratton, which, who really kind of helped us keep it going, if you like, as a story. And then, of course, when that video came out, people couldn't ignore it and it kind of exploded. And here we are several weeks later, lots of revelations from other outlets as well, still talking about it all. It is. I mean, I can't wait to go into more detail on that. Just to finish off on the coming story initially then, I remember you telling Andrew Marr when he asked you how you got the story, he said it was just good old-fashioned dogged journalism. 
But where does the initial, where do you get the initial nugget from? I got a phone call from, and I've said this before, but, uh, you know, maybe it got missed in the, in the hubbub at the time, but I got a phone call from somebody that I know in the Northeast who'd been out walking um, in the woods, which are near Cummings' parents' um, Cummings' parents' farm. And um, they said, I think I've just seen Dominic Cummings. And we Amazing. tried to get a photographer down there, but they got there too late. And that kind of, they were, and they were absolutely adamant. And then that kind of got the ball rolling. Um, and then came the sort of the dogged old fashioned journalism of, of you know, we, calling everybody I knew in the area, following up tip offs. Some people sort of posted things on social media, nine out of 10 of them were complete rubbish and were, it didn't come to, come to anything. Um, you know, going around my colleague, Jeremy Armstrong, who's our Northeast editor, going around knocking on doors. Um, you know, there were restrictions. We were just coming out of restrictions at that time. If you remember, it was last sort of April that we were working on the story. Um, journalists were still allowed to work, but we had to be very obviously careful because people didn't necessarily want anybody knocking on their door. Um, so, yeah, so just pursuing every lead we could think of. And there were lots and lots of different leads. And um, I felt that with a story of that nature, we needed to, it needed to be multiple sources because at that point, Dominic Cummings was the Prime Minister's senior advisor. He was a very powerful man, and we were about to make an allegation of him potentially breaching the law. And I felt that we couldn't do that based on one source, however adamant that they were. Um, but um, I, we didn't, still didn't get to a point that we were comfortable enough with it. And then I found out because of you know talking to people in the region that um, in County Durham that the Guardian were also looking at it. And I we thought and thought long and hard about it, but I had not that long before worked for the Guardian and knew people there pretty well. Didn't know Matt Weaver, the reporter that was working on it, but knew some of the editors and so on and trusted them. And crucially, I think they trusted me. So I made what I thought at that point was a fairly unorthodox approach um, to suggest that we collaborate. And they were up for it. They thought about it and we sort of laid down some ground rules and we decided that actually we'd work together because they, like us, felt that they'd come to a brick wall and that they weren't going to be able to get the story over the line. We'd already spent each of us, you know, five, six weeks um, working on it. Um, and, you know, because I think it was about a month before that that video of, which became a bit of a meme online of Dominic Cummings running out of number 10, the dancing queen in the background. Um, that, that, the, the soundtrack got added later, obviously, but that footage of him running out of number 10, and then we knew he, obviously we knew he'd had coronavirus. Um, so it, the rumours have been bubbling around for some time and we, I think we both just felt we need to get this over the line and we thought well if we can't do it independently then we'll do it together and that you know I'm, I'm not a I'm not particularly sort of protective or proud in the sense that I would be unwilling to share if I felt the story was in the public interested interest and fortunately Matt felt the same so we just worked very closely together and between us with Jeremy um, the three of us managed to you know managed to, to get it into print. I mean, it's, it's such a huge story. One of the biggest stories, really, since the Tories came to power again. I wonder how often we think about the role of a journalist and, and what your job entails. How many stories do you get where, like this Cummings one, you get a tip off and it eventually goes nowhere? You know, as a proportion of your stories, how many become kind of number one hits like this did? How many never see the light of day? Well, there's, of course, you do a whole load of stories day in, day out, which are writing about 
the subject of the moment. So today we're talking about Rishi Sunak and what support he can provide for hospitality. And we're talking about what happens with coronavirus restrictions. And, you know, you, you will sort of call around and you'll and you'll get sort of intel and you'll you'll add your sort of understanding um, to those stories. But they are effectively, you know, just a sort of a take on what everybody else is looking at. So that, that and that takes up a lot of your day often. Um, but what you're talking about is that is sort of the exclusives. Yeah. And again, they range from from, you know, quite straightforward ones, which make the paper all the time. Um, it might cause a bit of a ripple. I mean, we have several of those a week, sometimes one a day. Uh, you know, like last week, um, I revealed that Rishi Sunak was in California rather than here dealing with um, dealing with uh, hospitality. I mean, that made a few waves, but it wasn't sort of like, you know, a, a huge headline grabber. Um, but then the really big ones, there are definitely stories that I am aware of, which I have kind of like got stuff in my notepad and in the back of my head, which haven't come to fruition yet and may not for some time. And I say yet because I first heard about the party story last January and um, I was I was told that there'd been a party in number 10 before Christmas. Uh, it, again, it was single sourced. It wasn't a very solid source. And I pursued it and tried to find out more and couldn't. And that's frustrating, but I kind of like put that nugget away in my head and um, and didn't forget about it. And there's probably, you know, half a dozen similar nuggets in there, which may some at some point amount to something, but haven't done yet. Um, and then, you know, you fast forward 11 months or whatever it is, or in fact, it, was, it must have been a couple of months ago now, and I got a call from a contact and basically was handed what I've described as a metaphorical brown paper envelope with uh, you know evidence if you like that something had happened at number 10 which was not in itself enough to run a story but which encouraged me to look at it again and maybe think well actually maybe there was something in that and went back to my original um, notes from January and, and, and then sort of built it up so it wasn't a case of parking it or not wanting to run it or you know trying to suppress it or anything like that I tried I really tried to get it out there in January and I couldn't but it did help when it came to looking at it again this autumn to get the story over the line. And that Rishi story then, does that not become a bigger story because everyone's more interested in this Boris party thing, still the bigger thing? Rishi's not as big a player. People probably think it's not that controversial. Why did that story perhaps not fly in the way that you might have hoped it did? Well, no, I mean, I think I, it, it flew in exactly the way I expected, which is that, you know, we did a we, we did a sort of a, a lead on it the next day and then everybody else picked it up. And here we are several days later still asking the Treasury for his itinerary and there they are still refusing to publish it uh, beyond just giving us a sort of a broad brush or he met some, you know, tech people and that's it. And But we're, we're pursuing that and we'll keep we'll keep on at that because it's interesting to know what, what he was doing out there. And also he wasn't, you know, he wasn't doing anything illegal or anything, you know, um, against the rules even. So that's the big difference with with that allegation and the, and the, I mean an allegation is just a fact he was there and and sort of the party allegations it's not as it's not as serious I mean it's about judgment isn't it and you know would should you should he have gone what was he doing there was he going to come back when he when he was you know eventually did come back was he planning to stay longer you know those are sort of things that are interesting but they're not they're not just not as um, I think as uh, as pertinent or as um, or have as much cut through with the public um, as as the party stories. One of the stories that obviously had a huge cut through was Matt Hancock's, you know, breaking social distancing rules on on CCTV. When that story breaks, 
probably the majority of people think Dominic Cummings has leaked that. Dominic Cummings has either got that CCTV feed or, you know, put his own camera in there. I don't know what people think. How does a how does footage like that end up in the hands of journalists? Well, I think that's one for the information information commissioner's office, isn't it? I mean, as far as I'm aware, they raided a couple of employees' homes, and uh, I don't know what's I don't know what's come out of that. Um, that, of course, was a, a story that the Sun revealed. They were handed the footage um, and then did the story off the back of that. And Hancock put his hands up very quickly and said, "I was wrong. Uh, offered to resign." Interestingly, Boris Johnson did what he always does, which is kind of double down and hope it all goes away. I'm standing by him. But then 24 hours later, I realised, of course, that but such was the public outcry um, that and, and also from his own his own uh, backbenches that it just wasn't sustainable and that he would have to accept Hancock's um, resignation after all. But, you know, I mean, I, I can speculate, but I don't know, Matt, about how that footage came to light. I mean, we all have our own theories. Uh, it is. It is. It does feel like it was a pretty major security breach. Not least because you'd think the Secretary of State would know that there was CCTV in his office. I mean, it's not exactly hidden away in a corner, was it? Um, so you know, maybe he would. Maybe he should have been more careful. Um, but it is being looked at. Um, I think it's. I think it's much more likely to be. You know, somebody saw the footage and thought, well, I can make a buck out of this than 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 anything sort of like you know foreign. Powers, or indeed Dominic Cummings, who had left government by that point, um, uh, you know, it was not his, him sitting in a sort of a James Bond villain's lair somewhere, kind of pressing buttons and stroking his white cat. I think it's probably much more straightforward than that. So the number 10 Christmas party story then, as you've said, you, you first heard about it in January. Most of the year passes, you, you're sat there thinking, is that a story or not? Can you get more details? At what point does that come off that page from January and and start to gather momentum for you? So a few weeks before we broke the story, probably a good six weeks before we broke the story, um, I, as I say, was contacted by somebody who um, suggested I might want to look into the story again. And at that point, I thought, well, you know what, it is a year on, but we're coming up to the winter again. There were early suggestions that coronavirus this is obviously pre-omicron variant but there were suggestions that you know just from experience that the nhs was going to be it was already under pressure at that point and, and would be particularly so um again or even more so going into the winter and when and coronavirus hadn't really been on the agenda all summer as a people have been writing about it but it wasn't sort of on the front pages every single day and, and it had started sort of appearing on front pages again and public attention was was sort of turning back to it um, and so I spent, you know, the best part of five or six weeks talking to sources and trying to get evidence and stand things up and, you know, try and work out what was going on. And there was then in a position where I kind of did have enough to to write, but wanted to pick my moment um, where I thought it would have impact. And we had you know, the COP summit and we had various events happening after that. Um, Boris Johnson was, you know, First of all, there was the, the Tory Sleaze there and Patterson row, and then there was social care, and then there was Northern Rail, and there was a whole load of other stuff going on. Um, but then, like I say, started noticing coronavirus being on the front pages again. And I was sitting in the number time, number nine um, briefing room, the Downing Street briefing room, which is the one where the Electra Stratton video was filmed, uh, just for the, you know, the regular lobby briefing. And people were asking, 
about um, about coronavirus. And that morning, Jenny Harris, Dr. Jenny Harris, the UK Health Security Agency uh, chief, had been on the radio and suggested had been really the most prominent, the biggest um, medical figure to say uh, say first that we should maybe think about our social contacts running up to Christmas and we should maybe think about rowing back a little bit and, and cutting our social contacts. So obviously the Prime Minister's official spokesman got asked about this and he said, he basically slapped her down and said, no, we think that Christmas parties should go ahead. Um, that's not, that's me paraphrasing, but I just sat there and thought, here we go. You've got the scientists, the medics saying one thing and we've got number 10 saying, no, they go ahead. Tomorrow's stories are all going to be about number 10 says, press ahead with your Christmas parties, despite the gloomy scientists um, and their warnings. And I thought, well, this is the moment. This is the moment to run a story about this time last year because people are thinking about coronavirus again. They're thinking about their own Christmas parties again, and it's relevant. And that's sometimes the case in journalism. You might publish a story. It feels like you're sort of dropping it into, you're dropping a, a pin and nobody hears it. There's no, there's no, ripple, no ripples effect at all um, because everyone's so distracted by the noise of so much other stuff. All this time is where you drop it at just the right moments and it really takes off. And fortunately for us, this was one of those moments. And what you had was this drip, drip of extra details every few days. Now, did you have all those? Or once you broke the story, did they then start to come to you? And this is, this is where I'm going to ruin this romantic vision that people have of us journalists sitting there with them. Right, this is our day one and our day two and our day three. And we've got it all planned. We've got our grid for the next three weeks. Um, Sometimes it works like that. So like the coming stuff, we had a day one and a day two. Um, but this time round, uh, it was very much, let's get out there what we know and see what happens. And that obviously can also um, bring very dividends um, because people might then come to you with more information. I had a few suggestions of other things happening, but nothing that we could have published at that point. But on the back of that story, and then of course the next day, Keir Starmer, um, Keir Starmer was at Prime Minister Question Time and actually got the Prime Minister talking about it and denying it. And then we had this week of denials from um, number 10 as well. Um, and I'm losing track of exactly when we did which story, but I found out about the, uh, the Gavin Williamson story and we put that on the front page as well. Um, and then there were a couple of other bits of evidence too. But then of course the Allegra Stratton video came out and then suddenly everyone was interested. And, um, and it was after that that I learned about the, the the Christmas quiz at number 10, the one where you see the Prime Minister sat, the virtual quiz, which wasn't virtual at all, where you see the Prime Minister sat in a room with a one member of staff covered in tinsel and somebody else with a Santa hat on as he, as he sort of was quiz master for one round um, and then managed to speak to some more people. And, you know, these things, are, I think if you're going to run these types of stories, they need to be as accurate as possible. They need to be as as many sources as you as you feel comfortable sort of sharing it with um, because it all adds weight to it. And it's, I think it's interesting looking now that the four main events, parties, gatherings, whatever you want to call them, that Sue Gray, Simon Case and I, Sue Gray are going to be looking at are um, the, four, the, the four that we revealed, the, the November the 17th leaving due, the December the 18th Christmas party, the December the 15th Christmas quiz and the, and the, and the Department for Education one as well. And you'd imagine that uh, given the terms of reference for inquiry as such, that she'll also look into the gathering that we've seen on the front page of The Guardian, um, the gathering in The Guardian in the garden last May, The Garden in The Guardian. Um, 
last May and possibly even um, the, the gathering in Simon Casey's own office, which, of course, is why he ended up recusing himself from leading the investigation. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So when you get information about stuff like this, once the story's out there and people start to get in touch, what is the profile of those people? Do, do they tend to be people who are there and have left? Are they people who were there and thought it was a bad idea? Are there people who weren't there but have heard about it secondhand? I'm not going to tell you. I'm afraid because protecting sources is the is the absolute you know holy grail of journalism. Um, you know, there's a combination of people. This is this is not just one. Despite some suggestions, this is not one disgruntled employee or ex-employee with his, all this sort of explosive evidence that is dripping all out as revenge, um, or you know because they don't believe in the project anymore or anything like that. This is this is uh, you know multiple sources, and that's I'm afraid as far as I'm going to go on that. And I guess the reason for that is the more gatherings you have that involve more people, the more likely someone's going to find out. Yeah, and there's all sorts of rumours about other gatherings taking place. I mean, the tip-offs I've had about, um, you know, individual cabinet ministers in their offices in the Commons, other departments, not not on the scale of the number 10 one, but other departments with sort of, you know, events in private offices and stuff there's you know it does really feel I spoke to one source right at the beginning of all of this who said to me that it was almost like a cultural thing that people didn't really seem to understand that what they were doing wasn't okay and I've been surprised by the scale of it I think Sue Gray has got quite you know if she, if she looks into it all properly as I'm sure she will um, you know the contrast between how they were all living and working and how we were all living and working at the time is just absolutely off the scale. Just on Allegra Stratton, by the way, obviously she's a journalist herself, a broadcast journalist. She rose to prominence on Peston's programme. You may know her. How hard is it to cover a story about someone that you know and is, is basically of your profession? Well, she's not of our profession. She's not a journalist. She was a government advisor. And, you know, my sort of mantra has always been that, of course, you can be friendly with advisors and politicians. And that's part of the that's part of, you know, what we do, um, going out drinking and having lunch and sharing information and all the rest of it. 
um, that's part of what we do. That's an important part of what we do. But there's a difference between friendly with someone and being friends with someone. That's not to say that there aren't people in the civil service or in politics that I don't count as friends. Fortunately, none of them have had to write about it yet. Um, but, um, you know, you have to be professional about it. And I have to say, in the same way that we're professional about it, almost always, not, not always, but almost always, they're professional about it too. And they, they understand that, um, you know, we're doing our job and that as long as we kind of treat them fairly, we give them a chance to have their say, we explain what we're doing, we give them a heads up on what's coming, um, you know, that, that basically we're fair, then they, they, don't, they don't and can't really complain. Um, you know, it's a two-way street and I've been very struck with a few notable with a few notable exceptions, I've been very struck how um, you know people say to me, oh, the stories you've done, doesn't number 10 punish you? Don't you get, you know, frozen out or ostracized by ministers or whatever? And of course there's some that that you know don't know me or um, will sort of make assumptions on the basis of, of my journalism. But for the most part, the people I deal with professionally day in, day out, they continue to be professional about it. We continue to talk. Um, the mirror is never going to be their best friend anyway, so it's not like I've got some access to some stream of privileged information that they're suddenly cutting off in the first place. But um, but that, I'm pleased to say that that professionalism has has persisted. That's very reassuring. So when you say they, do you mean politicians, advisors, Downing Street, the civil service? Combination of all of them, you know, people that you talk to um, for your job day in, day out. Um, and I mean, I guess if you look at number 10, for example, I mean, I still talk to them about other stories that are coming up and they still give guidance on things and, you know, special advisors are the same, uh, which is what I would expect. Um, and, but it is, yes, I suppose it is reassuring that that continues. Of course, there, like I say, there are politicians that won't want to deal with me or the mirror. And that's understandable, I suppose, given our, our sort of, uh, you know, the fact that we're not really a, a very pro-government newspaper. Um, but, you know, I've been around, Matt, I've been around this game for, for 20 years or so, and I know a lot of people and I've worked for papers and I spent 10 years working at the Evening Standard, which is a paper on the right of centre. Um, I've worked for The Guardian, I've worked for The Mirror, um, I've worked for all sorts of organisations. And so if people know me, that they know that first and foremost, I'm a journalist rather than a politico myself. And that to me, it's in journalism that's important rather than sort of party politics. And, um, you know, in many cases have sort of a, a trusting relationship built up, even if we're of quite different um, outlooks on particular issues. Um, and, you know, that that is so far, and I touch wood, stood me in quite good stead. When you're trying to stand up a story and you're talking to people that might know, how delicate do those conversations have to be? Because the danger is you kind of show too much of your hand and then they're better prepared to deny it. Or, or am I overthinking that? Is it, a, is it a lot more straightforward? Do you just directly put stuff to them and they either, you know, confirm or deny and then you decide whether to run the story? Well, it depends who the person is and what the story is. Um, I mean, on these, on sort of bigger stories, if you like, I think it is, um, I, th I think that they, there's two things that they want and two things that work for me. Um one of which is sort of having a phone conversation and having an opportunity to talk frankly to each other um, off the record about, you know, what the story is and what you're looking for. And you make a decision at that moment as to how much, how much you reveal, you know, and how much you don't um, based on 
who you're talking to. Um, and secondly, is is quite quickly following it up if it's if it's, if it's like an, an allegation, um, like the party stuff, quite quickly following it up with an email, setting out what you're planning to publish. I think they, I think they, as far as advisors are concerned, they do massively like surprises, and if they can be if they can warn their minister in advance or indeed the prime minister in advance so they're not caught off caught on the, the hop, then that's fair enough. Now, that's not to say that I share information in advance or tell them what my story is going to be. That is absolutely not the case. Um, but I do think it's fair if you're publishing allegations that you give somebody a right to reply. And how do you feel about where you are now? You're basically like the journalist for the big scoops <laughs> on the government. Oh, no, you don't think so? I mean, this is like... Have you not come to terms with that yet? I don't know. I don't. I think I, oh, it's, I don't, that doesn't sit very comfortably with me because I'm just doing my job, and I know that I don't want to. I don't want to be some like sort of, you know, some big ego, you know, the big me stuff. It's not really my style. Um, I'm afraid, and I know that there are journalists that, well, there are people in every walk of life, aren't there? Lots of men, actually, funnily enough, um, that love all that stuff. But it's oh, I just find it a bit cringe. Actually, I kind of. You know, when my dad calls me up and says, oh, so-and-so at Rotary Club was talking about you or, you know, somebody down the street, I bump into them when I'm out to get a pint of milk. And they're like, oh, I saw you on Mar the other day. Or somebody else says, oh, I read your front page of the mirror. Very good. Um, you know, it's, oh, I mean, I, I love that people read it clearly. And I'm glad that my stories are having an impact, but they are. It's about the stories and it's not about me. But do you find now that you've got that reputation, um, even if you don't uh, are not comfortable with it, um, bigger stories are coming to you now that people go right well you need to give it to Pippa because when she breaks the story it goes extra large that's my hope um I certainly hope that people think that if they come to me with stuff that we can have an impact I would absolutely encourage anybody that even has a tip that they think might be fairly inconsequential to share it and I'd say that they could always absolutely trust me because I protect my sources, you know, first and foremost, I would never divulge anything that might identify them. And secondly, even if it feels only like a little tip to you, you don't know what else I know or who else has given me other tips. And actually it can end up becoming quite a substantial story without you even knowing that, that you know, the information that you held um, was so crucial to it all. That could just be the final piece in the jigsaw or the key that unlocks the door. So, um, and certainly, the, the the advantage of the profile profile for the journalism is that people are aware of you and are aware of the sort of stuff you do and do share information. Um, I mean, I kind of feel at the moment I need a week a week off just to sort of sit and go through my notebook and gather my notes and my thoughts and think, right, what next? Because <laughs> um, I don't have enough time. Well, this show has a varied uh, listenership all over the world. And many people who work in politics, I'm sure many disgruntled people who used to work in politics would want to get in touch with you. How should people get in touch with you, Pippa? Well, my email, well, Twitter is the easiest thing because my Twitter feed at Pippa Carrera has my email in the, at the biography, um, at the bio at the top. And they can either DM me on Twitter or they can, um, they can contact me uh, by email and I varying degrees of security regarding, you know, depending on on how sensitive people feel they or the information they have is, you know, I'm not averse to popping over to Signal or to meeting in a car park and handing over a brown paper envelope or <laughs> any of the above. It's not, not it's not normally that exciting. Um, have you ever but, taken uh, yeah. a brown paper envelope? Has ever 
anyone ever giving you information in that it way? It makes it sound like there's money in it, doesn't it? I've had, yeah, I mean, of course, people people will sort of, you know, hand over documents and stuff and they will be in brown paper envelopes. I've been in politics for 20 years. It's, it's rarely as glamorous as it sounds, though, or as exciting, sort of, you know, Woodward and Bernstein style. It's none of the old deep throat stuff. I mean, I know who my I know who my sources are. I mean, that's part of what we do. We have to know who our sources are. Um, so, um, yeah, but I think I think the key thing is I hope that people would know that they could trust me with information and that I would you know, guarantee anonymity and that I'd look after them because it's like a duty of care. I think that journalists have to their sources that goes on beyond the publication of a story initially. Um, and I take that very seriously. When you say look after them, is that purely just protecting their identity or does that have other elements to it? Well, it depends on the story and who they are, but, you know, it could be somebody that's in a vulnerable position for whatever reason, whether it's professionally or, you know, um, in any other way. And um, I think people don't often, people in our world understand what the media is about, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of folk out there that have never really come into contact with journalists or journalism and, you know, we're not, let's not kid ourselves, not all journalists and not all newspapers have a, have a great rep. And often it's people's views of them are taken from what they've seen on the news or what, indeed what they've seen on the, on the big screen. And it's, that's not always how it works. And I think sometimes that can mean there's a, that lack of experience can make people in itself can make people vulnerable, which is why I think it's really important that they're sort of guided through the process and that you're clear with them throughout what you're doing and what it means. Um, and that doesn't just stop on the day that you publish your story. And what brought you into journalism? Was it seeing journalists on the silver screen? <laughs> um, it, it was nothing very glamorous, actually. It was more just that I always wanted in every part of my life to know what was going on. I guess I'm just a bit nosy. And um, and I love current affairs as, you know, quite a you know, as a teenager and, and growing up, I was always really fascinated by politics and what made the world go round. And um, I felt very strongly always that it's important, not to sound too grand about it, but important for our democracy that we do have people holding those in power to account. And, you know, that's ultimately why I, I do what I do. I mean, I know you're very modest about um, how successful you've been, particularly in the last few years, but do you feel like you've achieved your dream that you've become a, a journalist that really has had an impact and has held the powerful to account? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I'm doing what I always wanted to do. And I think there's not many people that can say that about where they end up professionally. I mean, of course, like everyone, you know, we've all got our, our own levelers, in my case, children who I'd be like, quick, quick, turn the radio on, listen to this or listen to this podcast, it's mummy. And they're like, yeah, whatever, that's boring. Politics is boring. So, um, so you know, it's not, uh, I know that it, it makes me tick and it's, and it's, I, I'm thrilled to be doing what I'm doing, but I also appreciate that it's, it's not everyone else's thing. It's not everyone's thing. No, and, and obviously you've, you've got a long time left. You know, there are other things. Well, because you... I'm so young. How kind of you to say. Well, but you are. So you've got, you know, you've still got decades left to, to make even more of an impact or do other things. I mean, not that you feel that you've reached the top, because I'm not sure anyone ever feels like that. But do you think, oh, actually, I, I feel like I've reached a level where I'm breaking really big stories that have a huge impact, um, that people will talk about, you know, for ages. Do you think, oh, actually, I might like to write a book now or, or do something different? 
not right this minute. I mean, I'm 45, so you know, I'd like to think I'm not quite past it. Um, but I don't have a, I don't have a sort of grand plan for what comes next. I feel that we're sort of midterm, um, midterm in a government, and I don't. I want to see what happens with this government. Um, and longer term, I mean, who knows? Yeah, I'd love to write a book. I'm not sure I'd be able to write a book. I'm not sure I'm good enough, but... Um, oh, come but, on. Uh, no, the writing side of it and the time and the... I mean, it'd be an amazing thing to do. I'd love to give it a go anyway. Of course you could write um, a book. I well, wrote I a know, book, maybe. for crying out yeah. loud. Yeah, your, your book's really good. Yours is really good, though. No, it um, wouldn't be anywhere near as good. I mean, yeah. of course. I mean, I, I understand that... Um, some things seem big until you've done them, but surely, I mean, a book about the stories you broke and with extra Maybe. details. If, 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 if people would be interesting. Well, listen, but I have over the last couple of years talked to a couple of publishers and agents and stuff about things. But the conclusion I've come to kind of, you know, regretfully is that there, if, if you write a book, it becomes one of the three big things in, in my life. My things are my work, my family, and the book would be a third. And I don't think you can manage to do, I don't think I can manage to do um, three out of the three. I think I could manage to do two out of the three. And I'm not going to compromise on the work. And I'm sure as hell I'm not going to compromise on my family. So the book can the book can wait until, you know, the kids are a bit older or maybe I'm a bit more over the hill in the day job. And, uh, you know, hopefully people still be interested in, in hearing about and hearing about what I've got, what I've got to say. And I know you say you're not a political, obviously you break huge political stories. Have any politicians ever approached you and, and asked you to work with them? <laughs> um, yes, over the years. And what I think is really interesting is that I've been approached by politicians on from both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party at different points in my career. Um, all quite centrist, none of the sort of with, you know, far wings, if you like, of the, of the various parties, um, asking whether I'd be interested. And I think that's, I think that's really interesting because people make a lot of assumptions about you based on who you work for. But I kind of think, well, if over the course of my career, I've worked for papers sort of on both sides of the political divide, and I've, I've been approached for jobs on both sides of the political divide, then maybe actually people don't know as much about me as they might like to think they do. Because you're way out on the extreme and no one's figured it because out. Because I'm totally, radically extreme. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so just thinking of Boris Johnson, I mean, everyone at the moment is is wondering how long he lasts. And of course, who knows? What do your instincts tell you about how long he's got? Never to? underestimate Boris Johnson. I mean, I covered him for years at City Hall when he was mayor of London and... I learned not to underestimate him. I think um, what I'd say about what he's going through now is that it's a tipping point rather than the end. And I think there are certain things about the situation in which he finds himself, one of which is that he's not as popular as with his own party as a prime minister might want to be. And that, I think, is because the support for him is always quite shallow anyway in that he didn't have a natural sort of constituency of supporters on the back benches, a large group of people that were, he was ideologically uh, allied to, who would kind of fight his corner when the chips were down. Instead, he had this massive appeal as a vote winner. And 
as long as you've seen as an electoral liability, his party would stick with him. What's interesting about what's happening now with his personal ratings plummeting, losing the North Shropshire by-election, is drip by drip, incrementally, that sort of allure of the election winner is kind of fading. And lots of Tories are thinking, actually, is he an electoral liability? Now, they don't need to do anything about it right this second. I don't think they will as we go into the next few weeks of the COVID crisis. But it is very much a sort of a shift. And their shift reflects a broader shift in the electorate that they will be hearing from constituents and party members all the time about their views of the prime minister. And just as the support for Boris Johnson within his own party was quite shallow, I wonder whether in these volatile political times, so is the support in the country. People supported him because they, they, they you know, it's all, lots was priced in about, you know, whether he's, his relationship with the truth, his personal life, all that sort of stuff. But people, to, A, tolerated it because they thought, well, he's going to get Brexit done. We don't want Jeremy Corbyn, whatever else the reasons were. And B, kind of love the sort of the, you know, what they saw as like the charm, the sort of, not that he's one of them, but he makes them, he, he comes across despite being in the position he's in as of being sort of anti-establishment. And I think that that resonates with a lot of people. But it wasn't a sort of a, a sort of a profound respect for him or the positions he held. Um, and and it was quite shallow. And I think what's interesting is that also feels like it's at a bit of a tipping point, which is astonishing, really, when you think it's just two years since he won that massive majority that brought the Tories to power um, and, and, and put him into number 10. So I don't think it's all over for him yet. I don't think we should underestimate him. But I do think a lot of it comes down to whether his party regards him as still electable. And a lot of that comes down to delivery on his big promises, things like levelling up and whether Brexit ends up being entirely the Brexit people expected, um, immigration and so on. Um, and it feels like a very febrile time. So I think more than at any point in all the time I've covered him, I think this is a real danger moment for him. And what about Keir Starmer? Does it feel like he's in a different place now? Obviously, for a lot of people, uh, a huge improvement on Jeremy Corbyn, professional, likeable, um, handy in many ways, but understandably, perhaps during a pandemic, people felt that he didn't cut through. Obviously, people have more pressing matters to deal with. As politics and as things have opened up a bit more, he has felt like he's grown in stature, that he's perhaps sharpened his attacks, helped by people like West Streeting and, and Yvette Cooper. Do you feel that he is growing in stature, that the public are warming to him perhaps for the first time since he became leader? Well, when he first became leader, I think he um, went down quite well. Maybe that was because of the contrast to Corbyn uh, with the wider public, I don't know. But then, as you rightly say, during the pandemic, it was very difficult for them to set themselves apart, to define themselves, um, to get sort of airtime for anything other than on the pandemic. And you know, they made the decision early on that they wanted to be seen to act in the national interest. So I think there's a lot of Labour voters that were saying, why aren't you giving the government a kicking rather than supporting them with these measures? Um, so he emerged from the pandemic in a, in a pretty, you know, just as Boris Johnson was reaching his midsummer vaccine bounce, he was sort of really the opposite. He was in the doldrums. Um, but you're right, it does feel like as the as the 
woes of the prime minister have grown, um, the uh, you know things have got better for Keir Starmer. And you know, obviously, there's a bit of there's always a bit of a swing, a seesaw in politics with polls and stuff like that. So I don't think you should read too much into them mid-term. But it does feel like he's got um, a spring in his step. And whether that is to do with the prime minister's woes, whether that is to do with the new shadow cabinet, whether that is to do with a sort of a a confidence he now has that he didn't seem to have before. Um, things are definitely looking better for him. I mean, I know that a lot of people feel, or some people feel, that yeah, they want to question whether he has the um, political punch, uh, the instinct, if you like, to react quickly, whether he's too loyally in the way his mind works and he's always thinking sort of two, three steps ahead rather than just going for the guttural instinct. I know that's a question that some of his colleagues have about him and I suspect the wider public. But, you know, he's put on a good show, hasn't he, the last few weeks with PMQs and so on. So, you know, maybe he's being underestimated. Um, but he's got a lot. He's got still got a long way to go, I think, to prove himself. And I think people, I think the public want to start knowing now what he actually stands for and what a Labour government would do that's different from this one. He doesn't have much time to do it, but he does have some. And that will be as far as the Labour Party is concerned, that's where our eyes will be going next. You know, what's he, what's, what would he do if he was, if he was lucky enough to end up in number 10? Pippa, you've had a, a phenomenal couple of years. I'm sure 2022 will continue to be full of wonderful exclusives that we will all relish. Um, so all the best for all those things that are in your notebook now. And this time next year may be the, the biggest story of, uh, of the year. Um, thank you so much. This has been just such a privilege. Thank you. Thanks for having me on and uh, I'll keep you posted on the stories. Maybe I can come back this time next year and talk about them. Yes, let's have an annual um, scoop <laughs> fest where I try and figure out who your sources are and you very <laughs> politely tell me no. Cheers, Pippa. <laughs> have a happy Christmas. Merry Christmas. Oh boy, wasn't that great? I mean, obviously, I would, <laughs> I would love to have found out. I knew I wasn't going to get names. Um, maybe at some point in the future, who knows? But obviously, Pippa should write a book. Um, I, I would read it. I'm sure all of you would. And, of course, you can get in touch with Pippa and give her your tips. Because, as you say, as she says, you never know. Her Twitter feed is at uh, Pippa Creera. That's P-I-P-P-A-C-R-E-R-A-R. -E <laughs> I've read that out like I've never read anything out loud before. I've put a link to that in the blurb in the show notes that you can get in touch with her her dms are open uh, for, so if you are a if you are a member of political staff with a story uh, get in touch with pippa maybe you could have uh, a global exclusive on your hands um thank you so much for listening to this merry christmas once again we're in a situation where you may not be able to see your loved ones this christmas um so i'm very sorry if if that's the case um i hope in some small way uh, listening to this podcast as um I was going to say, giving you a bit of a distraction from COVID, but obviously we have talked about stories that have broken during COVID. Um, but it means the world that you listen to this. So thank you for downloading it. If you could leave a review, that would be great. If you want to buy tickets for the shows, that would also be great. But just thank you for listening to this. Thank you for all your emails and tweets and messages about the show. People are very, very kind. And it's always lovely when people get in touch, not just with places that they've seen politicians or mundane experiences, but just feedback. Uh, and uh, lovely stories of where people listen. So uh, it really does mean a great deal that um, that you enjoy the show because it's obviously made 
purely out of passion. I just love doing it. I love talking to politicians. I love talking to people like Pippa about the stories they break about politics. So all the best for the new year. I will see you soon, as soon as it is safe to do so again. And have a great Christmas. Ta-ra. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.